Welcome to the Vineyard Altoona podcast. If you have any questions or just want more information, you can visit our website at vineyardaltuna.org or any of our social media platforms at Vineyard Altoona. And now, here's Derek with the message. We're going to continue this series. And I want to sort of start by telling you a story. How many of you, like, maybe not even a show of hands, but I used to be an airline pilot. I've told a thousand people that, but I always forget who I've told. Once upon a time in my former life, I was an airline pilot. And one of the cool things about being an airline pilot is that you get travel benefits. So I spent most of my 20s with Jerry in some foreign countries. We used to just travel, uh, you know, wherever. You know, we'd say, hey, it's a weekend. Let's go to Jamaica. And we would go to Jamaica. Or we would make plans and we'd go to Europe or wherever. And so we traveled a lot um, all through our 20s. Uh, We had children and we stopped traveling. Um, But one time we took this trip to to Mexico. And the way travel works as an airline employee is you have, like, you list yourself. You put yourself on a list of standby travel. Anybody ever done standby travel? A little bit frustrating sometimes. Back in the day, there used to be a lot of open seats and standby travel was actually fun. Um, you list yourself on this list, and then as the seats are available, as it gets close to the flight, they start calling off people in a priority list. So I was a regional airline pilot, so, you know, mainline, like Delta, would get above us, but then when there were enough seats and not enough people listed, we would, we'd get a ticket. And so I grew accustomed in the United States to this just works this way. You know, you, you show up, you sit down, you watch the thing on your phone, And it's like, yep, we're going to get on. And about 10 minutes before, they hand you a ticket, and on you go. So we went on this trip to Mexico. And it was a great trip. There are pictures on the interwebs. If you're my Facebook friend, you can stalk and find of our trip to uh, Mexico. But on the way back, we had listed to come back on Delta. And uh, the agent that, uh, that we interacted with uh, we, normally we show up and we ask, hey, you know, I'm listed. Can, do I have a, a seat for me? So we showed up and there were plenty of seats. Like when I looked, it was like there were 10 people listed and like 25 seats. So I was like, we're totally getting on this flight. No big deal. Show up. And I'm standing there and I walk up to the, to the ticket agent. The ticket agent, just in case anybody watches this from Delta, it's not a Delta ticket agent. Um, the ticket agent, I said, you know, I'm listed. Do you have a, a seat for me? And he looked at me and he goes, there may be seats. And he just stared at me. Like, and I stood there for a minute like, I don't know how this works now. Like, what do I do now? And I stared at him. And we had this really awkward, long stare. We were longingly looking in one another's eyes. <laughs> I was longing for a seat. I found out later he was longing for money. And what I discovered when we didn't get on, when they called all the names and there were no seats, 25 open seats, 10 people, you do the math. So Jerry and I were like, well, what are we going to do? So we went to the cafe in the airport, and we sat there, and we had this conversation. And this other airline employee came up, and they were like, oh, yeah, sometimes what they're asking for is for you to hand them money. And if you hand them money, there will be seats. So when he said there may be seats, what he meant was there are seats if you give me money. And I was shocked, right? Can you imagine? Like, this is not how this is supposed to work. It was stunning to me that there were no seats, that it didn't work the way that I thought things should work. Have you ever been in that situation where things didn't work? You were shocked that things didn't work the way they were supposed to work. See, we began this series a few weeks ago uh, called He Gets Us, 
And, and what I've told you is that because Jesus came to earth as a man, he understands what it's like to be us. He understands what it's like to be a person. He understands the way things in the world work, even as he offers us a different way. See, he understands when things don't work as they should. You know, the, the world has taught us that we need to grow up, fend for yourself, make your own way, become self-sufficient, right? Is that, I mean, I don't know if that, that's the way you grew up, but I feel like that's the mold that we get squished into, right? Fend for yourself. Nobody cares about you. You've got to make your own way. Maybe I have different brokenness than you. But this is the way that we learn to grow up, and yet the way of Jesus is something shocking what we would expect. It's surprising. Jesus offers us a different way of being. And the way of Jesus is the way of surrender and dependence. Like a child. Surrender and dependence. We're going to talk about what that looks like. I'm calling today's message, Be Childlike. So let's pray, and then we'll turn to Scripture. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I just know that you have invited us into a different way. That you have called us to be people that look different than the world. That you have invited us into something else that's shocking to the way the world sees things. And so, Lord, as we look at this and as we talk about this, God, I pray that you would give grace, that you would put your words in my mouth, Lord, that I would speak clearly, and God, that you would grant gifts of faith. Come now and put power on this message in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 18. If you have a Bible, Matthew chapter 18. It's a very short passage. Beginning in verse 1, here's what we read. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Now, if you're familiar with the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what you probably recognize is some version of this passage shows up in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Have you seen this in other places? Those of you who have memorized all of the Gospels, you see that it's in, it's in three of the four. And in each of this, these instances, there's a significant phrase that Jesus utters. It's one that makes every bit of difference if you understand it. In Matthew, he says, the kingdom of heaven in Mark and in Luke, he says, the kingdom of God. And if you don't understand what that phrase means, all of this gets lost. You say, well, Jesus says, you know, I'll be like a child, so I guess I got to be irresponsible and, you know, cry a lot. Right? Not that any child that you know does that, right? Just ones you've heard about. But, but what you have to understand is what Jesus is talking about when he says the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. It's critical. Now, in Matthew, he uses the phrase, the kingdom of heaven. And in the other two, he says, the kingdom of God. These are the same thing. 
The difference is, in Matthew, most of Matthew's gospel was written to a Jewish audience. And if you're familiar with Jewish culture, Jewish people very much don't want to take the Lord's name in vain. They're very concerned about it. And so they would replace the word God with heaven so, so as to not at all come close. But in, in essence, what, what Jesus is saying in this passage, or the way that it's represented, is the kingdom of God. So what do we think of when we hear this phrase? The kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. For many of us, we probably have a lot of different ideas. Some of us think probably of a geographical area, right? Like if you spin the globe and you look on the other side, what you find is the United Kingdom. And you would say, well, there's a geographical area that's labeled kingdom. And so that must be what, the, what Jesus means when he says kingdom. And it's the geographical area ruled by King Charles, right? That just happened. Or maybe we, you know, so we make the assumption that the kingdom of God must be a geographical area that's ruled by God, right? That, that must be what it is. It's some geographical area. So then we start thinking, well, then God's geographical area must be heaven. And so the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God must be heaven. And, well, wait a minute. I think God's supposed to be in charge of all the church buildings. So Maybe church buildings are the kingdom of God and the people who come to them are in it and maybe that's all. And if you think about it that way, incidentally, you start thinking this building becomes magical. Have you grown up with that, thought, that idea? That there's something mystical about the buildings we meet in. Those of you who have been with us since we were in the train station learned something very, very foundational about the kingdom of God because there was nothing magical about the train station. Some of you are like, what are you talking about train station? This church used to meet in a train station. Long time ago. A little while ago. But if we think of the kingdom of God as a location, then we start saying, well, the church building must be a mystical place, a magical place. Because it's the place that God rules and reigns. We get all kinds of twisted ideas, but this is not what Jesus is referring to. In the Bible, the Greek word for kingdom is basileia. Basileia basically means the right of a king to rule. What that means is anywhere where the king has a right to exercise authority is the kingdom. This is really important to understand. Anywhere that the king has a right to exercise authority is the kingdom. So when we think about the kingdom of God, it's anywhere in the world where God has the right to exercise authority. Okay? Let me illustrate this. I'm stuck on, like, British examples. I don't know why. I wrote this one out because I thought it was fascinating. You know, in the 1600s, the, the British colonized this, this place, right? I wouldn't necessarily call it a nation, but this continent that you're on, the, the British sent colonies and created colonies on this continent, right? And so even though the king was not here the king had the ability to exercise his authority over people and places here. So be similar to the kingdom of God. Does that make sense? You tracking with me? Now, when the Revolutionary War was over, we said we don't want that kingdom. We want a different governing authority. This is the idea about kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is any place where God has a right to exercise his authority. So when Jesus speaks of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, what he's talking about is everywhere he gets his way, everywhere he is allowed to have his way. So we hope it's in churches, 
right? Don't we hope that God can get his way in churches? Sadly, it's not always true. But the kingdom of God is anywhere that God gets his way. And the kingdom comes with certain characteristics. Have you ever noticed this? Any place where God is getting his way, have you noticed what happens? When I was at Asbury a few weeks ago, the kingdom of God was so present. And do you know what happened in that space? People were reconciled in broken relationships. They were reconciled. Peace was the atmosphere of the room. Patience was evident everywhere. Nobody was in a hurry. Do you see what I'm talking about? Joy. So the characteristics of the kingdom of God are forgiveness. There's an atmosphere of forgiveness. What I found when I was there was people would talk about the love of God and it was so tangibly evident that you could believe it. There's characteristics when the kingdom of God comes. This is what it is to be under the rule and the reign of God. And the way these things come is by surrender. We come into the kingdom of God by surrender. When the disciples heard Jesus talking about the kingdom of God, what they expected was that a Messiah was going to come and kick out the, the, the Romans who were an oppressive force and defeat them by military power and establish the kingdom of God. And of course, then they're like, wait a minute, we might get to be somebody, right? If you read through the gospels, especially like Mark, it's just super exciting to see over and over and over, they're all like, we might get to be some. If this guy is actually the Messiah, I, I might get to be the prime minister and I might get to be the secretary of defense. And they start jockeying for position, which is why they ask the question in verse one, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. See, the disciples don't get it. They don't get what Jesus is here to do. So like, who's the greatest? Which one of us gets to sit in the chair next to yours? And in every other first century kingdom, this is a completely appropriate question. As we're establishing the rule and reign of whatever king, the appropriate question is, well, who's in charge here? Who's second in command? And we start going, well, who's the strongest? Who's got the nicest sounding voice? They'll be the one in charge of, you know, press conferences. Who's, who's got like, who's got a pretty face? They can be like the, the picture on the, on the posters. We start talking about who's the strongest, who's the smartest, who's the best looking, who has the best ideas, but Jesus has something different to say. To answer the question, he calls a child. Now, when you look through this and Matthew and uh, Mark say a little child. Luke actually says babies. Somewhere between, think of a preschooler. We're talking like three to five years old. So these guys say, well, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus says, hold on a minute. And he pulls over this preschooler. And you can imagine they're all standing in this circle like, come on, Jesus, tell us who's going to be in charge. And he pulls this preschooler in the middle and he says, unless you become like this preschooler, you can't enter. You can't be a place where God gets his way unless you become like this preschooler. It's countercultural, right? Preschoolers don't have any so, like, social standing, right? They're not like jockeying for position and trying to, they don't even know that they should jockey for position, right? So this preschooler is standing in the middle 
And Jesus says, you got to become like the preschooler. Why preschoolers? They don't have any social standing, and they're completely surrendered and dependent upon adults to make things work for them. When my kids were in preschool and they wanted to go swimming, it's still this way, they can't drive yet. But they're dependent on me taking them swimming. You know, when you have a four-year-old and they're hungry, they're dependent on you to feed them. Do you know that? Those of you who don't have kids, when you have a four-year-old, you have to feed them. It's not like your plant that you can just let it go for a week. Some of you are like, oh, that's all I needed. I came to church to know that I have to feed kids. It's great. The thing Jesus is trying to say is, to be great in the kingdom of God means that you are completely surrendered and dependent. How many of you raise your kids to be that way? Most of us don't raise our kids that way, right? I don't raise my kids that way. We raise our kids to go, we want you to be well-adjusted, Self-sufficient, right? I'm constantly telling my kids, you can do that for yourself. You are able to pour your own drink. You want waffles? You can put your own waffles in the toaster and they will pop up, right? Don't we raise our kids this way? Am I the only one that's trying to raise their kids to be sort of self-sufficient? Right? We, that's the way we raise kids. We say, well, if we, if we can raise them to be self-sufficient enough, if we can raise them to sort of like think for themselves and think the right way for themselves, then they'll grow up and they'll be responsible adults, which is all my mom ever wanted for me. She said, I just want him to be a functioning member of society. She had high hopes. Isn't that what we want for our kids? We say, well, let's raise them to be functioning members of society. And so we say, you can do that for yourself. You can do that for yourself. You can do that for yourself. And what happens is, as kids grow up into adults, they think, I can do everything for myself and I have to. Can I, if you're a parent, can I just, this is not even in my notes. Can I just offer you a suggestion? If you're a parent, raise your kids to be able to do things on their own, but raise them to know to hear the voice of God. What we do back here is so critical. We taught my son to hear the voice of God when he was, I think, six, maybe. And it was a little bit of a process, but do you know what happens? Instead of trying to make his own way, we have this language. What does God say about that? And my son knows I should go pray and ask God what he thinks of that. Now he's capable of putting his own waffles in the toaster but he also knows to listen for the voice of God. Can I just offer that as a parent, as a suggestion to you? Because what we're trying to raise kids to be is functioning in the world, but we also want them to be people who are responsive to God. That's just like, it's not all in the notes, but it's something that I feel like is something that nobody really told me, but it seemed important. So we raise kids, we want them to be fully functioning members of society, we want them to be self-sufficient and able, and they grow up and they're actually able to do it, aren't they? Most of them. Some of them move back when they're like 35, right? But 
We raise them to be fully self-sufficient, and that's our hope. We hope that, they will, that they'll do it, and so we, we begin, as, as we grow up, we start to think, well, okay, I need to make a better way. I need to make a better decision. I'm going to decide for myself what it is I'm going to do in this situation, and then after it happens, I'm going to evaluate the results. Do I like that? Don't I like that? I'm not getting good grades in school, so I'm going to have to change my study habits. I'm going to have to do this, and I run a plan. And hopefully, I arrive where I intend to arrive, right? And then we get to this place where we're like, our lives are not working the way that they should, and things are a mess, and it's not going the way that I hoped it would go, and I've tried everything I know to try. Have you been there? I've tried everything I know to try. I've even bought the Oprah magazine thinking, well, I got, what else do I have, right? We've tried everything we know to try, and what we've discovered is that there's something missing. Life doesn't work the way that we hoped it would work. And if you were fortunate enough to grow up in church, you maybe fare a little bit better, right? Because all along you had Sunday school teachers who were like, well, you got to believe in Jesus. You know, what's the answer in every Sunday school class? It's God or Jesus, right? And maybe you had people who were like, you should read the Bible. And so we grow up and maybe we fare a little bit better. But really... All of these things are just one more voice, right? It's just one more voice as I'm evaluating decisions. You know, I'm walking through, I saw the National Enquirer, and I'm like, well, there's a voice. Or I've got a friend who, you know, is doing this yoga thing, there's a voice. And I've got this Bible thing that I'm reading, and there's a voice. And I have that Sunday school teacher who told me that I just need to trust Jesus, and that's a voice. And I have my friend who's like, hey, let's just go get drunk and forget about it all. And that's a voice. And if we grow up just being handed all of these voices, what we end up with is confusion. Have you been there? Do you know that experience? And here's the problem I ran into after living my life that way. I grew up in church, and after 18 years, I don't know how many hundreds, maybe thousands of sermons I heard, we were in church every time it was open, I was handed a Bible from a very young age and told to read it. I had all the right things to staple on and make my life better, right? I had the right voices, and yet I was still trying to make my own way. If you grew up in church, it's still very possible that you have spent most of your life trying to make your own way. And maybe you're considering better sources. I have the Bible. I have my small group. But what I discovered is that when you try to make your own way, you end up making a mess. Or at least I did. I've made my own way. I had the Bible. And can I just tell you what I ended up discovering was I think Christianity doesn't work. That's what I landed on when I was 18 years old. I was like, I've been trying this thing People have told me Christianity has the answers. I've been trying it, and I don't think it has the answers for me. Maybe it has answers for some people. It has an didn't have answers for me, right? I spent a whole long time trying to do everything I could to make myself happy. I spent a whole long time trying to make my life work the way that I think it should, and yet with all of that, when I was 18, I'm wondering, why don't I experience the joy that the Bible talks about? You been there? 
why don't I experience the peace that I see in the Bible? People talk about the peace of God that passes all understanding. You heard that phrase? And I found myself just full of shame, like I know I'm supposed to believe that, but that's not my reality. I spent my entire childhood in church. Some of you are like, where are you going with this? <laughs> Have you had that experience? I've taken all the jobs. I took all the promotions. I chased all the relationships, all the experiences. And yet I couldn't figure out why I didn't experience the kingdom of God. Let me tell you what I discovered. Going to church and reading the Bible are helpful, so don't mishear me, okay? I still think those are important things to do. You're all here. This is a good thing. I promise. But it's not about contributing more sources to the mix. It's not about filling the swirl in your brain with more sources or saying, what if I get the, the right one over here? I'll get rid of the Oprah magazine. I'll get the Bible and we'll read that thing. It's not about adding more uh, uh, things or more voices. It's not that your life is working really pretty well and if I just put a little bit of Bible in, it'll work just perfect. As if somehow this Christianity thing is the garnish that'll make your thing a masterpiece. That's not the idea. What Jesus says brings life, and the life we're longing for is surrender and dependence. Become like a preschooler. Stop trying to make your own way and surrender to Jesus. Stop being self-sufficient. Become God-dependent. That's easy to say, isn't it? Have you ever tried to do that? Some of you are like, you need to get to a hopeful part or I'm leaving. I'm getting depressed here. There's hope coming. It's hard because we think we have something of worth and value. And it's hard when we think that we have built something that is worth something, that we've built a life and I know a lot of things and I've learned a lot of things and I have a lot of experience. It's hard to say, are you telling me that's not worth anything? Right? That's what surrender is. It's like I'm going to take all the things that I'm holding and I'm going to let go of them. Right? We're, we're operating on English. This is the same Word surrender is, I'm letting go of all the things I think I have. There's a reason we close our services like this. It's on purpose. I'm putting a posture for you. Because most of us think we have some pretty good ideas. Most of us think that we're just a little bit, we're just a little bit off. My life is, I mean, I get it. It's not completely working the way I intend it to, but I'm just a little bit off. And if I could just get enough Jesus to make up the gap, then everything will be fine. Don't we think that? I got a lot of really good ideas. Which is why Jesus says, if you want to be a kingdom person, you have to take up your cross and follow him. What he's saying is, die. <laughs> like, where's the hope? Die to yourself. That's the invitation. It's not staple a little Jesus on. He says, die. If you want to be a kingdom person, you have to die because however good you think you are, however good the stuff you have is, it's all garbage. That's what Paul says, right? I consider everything 
garbage for the, for the knowledge of Jesus. Jesus didn't come to make you better. Jesus came to make you new. Jesus didn't come to make you better. Jesus came to make you new. It starts with surrender. Do you know that's why we do baptism the way that we do? Have you ever thought about what happens in baptism? You say, I'm surrendering to Jesus. I count all that I have and all that I am as loss. I surrender it all for the sake of Jesus. And then we do this thing where we fill a horse trough full of water, which is a little bit weird, and we put you under it. The symbolism here is I am dead to everything I was before. And I'm raised to new life. Which is why when we baptize you, it's really, really a good thing to put everything in the water. We don't like hold our hand out with the wallet, right? How many of you want to get baptized that way, right? I'm going to keep the wallet out because I'm not surrendering that to Jesus. But everything else he can have. Right? That's why we do baptism the way we do it. Because what we're saying is we are dead to everything we were so that we come into new life. The way into the kingdom is surrender and dependence. But it's not only the way into the kingdom. The way on in the kingdom is surrender and dependence. Look at verse 4 again. It says, therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says the greatest person in the kingdom is the one who takes the posture of a preschooler, right? We on the same page? The one who takes the posture of the preschooler is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. It's the person who's not jockeying for position. It's the person who's completely surrendered and dependent on Jesus. And what that means is anything you add to surrender and dependence takes you down. Do you see that? If you add anything, it's now no longer surrender or dependence. It's something else which makes you lesser in the kingdom. You start your, your life in, in the kingdom at the top. When you enter the kingdom, you start your life at the top. And do you know there's not another way of being in the kingdom? There's not another way. There's not like a, well, I got in through surrender and dependence, but now... Now I'm in charge, and I'm also somebody, and I have status. It stays the same all the way through. What this means is that you never graduate. Do you know if you had to, like, if you had to level up in the kingdom, a lot of us would be in trouble, wouldn't we? Like, if you had to level up, if you had to go, well, you know, it's only seminary graduates. Once you graduate seminary, then you're the greatest in the kingdom. You know, once you've learned all the Bible verses and you've memorized all the things, then you're greatest. It can't be dependent on that. It has to be dependent entirely on surrender and dependence because it's dependent entirely on Jesus. Your status in the kingdom is dependent entirely on Jesus. It's not on you. There's not one way into the kingdom and then you grow up not needing to be surrender and dependence. John Wimber used to say this, the way in is the way on. Nothing, it doesn't change. Here's what I know to be true. Everyone I have spent time with who has lived a vibrant Christian life for a really, really long time, like think about the people who have lived decades as followers of Jesus, and they're still lively people. They're still full of life of the kingdom. Do you know what I have discovered about all those people? Increasingly, their lives are marked by surrender and dependence. 
See, the way up in the kingdom is the way down. The way up is the way down. It's by more service. It's by more surrender. It's by more dependence. And it's certainly been my experience. The longer I follow Jesus, what I discover is that I'm increasingly invited into more surrender and more dependence. You know what also shows up in those spaces? A temptation to self-sufficiency. Have you seen this? Like if you follow Jesus for a long time, Jesus is constantly like, hey, give me that. Hey, give me that. Does Jesus talk to you that way? He talks to me that way. Hey, that thing that you're holding, give me that. Give me that. That's not good for you. Hey, hey, that one too. That one too, right? It's like a kid with a knife. Right? No, 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 no. Give, give me that. That's not good for you. That's, Jesus. That's the way Jesus talks to me all the time. And what's tempting in me is to go, no, 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 Jesus, I know how the knife works. Right? That's constantly the temptation as we go forward. But the people who have lived their lives the longest in the kingdom are people who know about surrender and dependence. Surrender and dependence. Do you know the struggle, the temptation to self-sufficiency? You've been following Jesus for a little while. You know, maybe you gave your, your life to Jesus at one point and you experienced the fullness of life. you remember that? And you're really in touch, like, I remember the emotion of that and what it felt like to, like, the weight was off. I no longer had to make my own way, and I could trust Jesus to make my way, and the weight was off, and it was so amazing. I came into the kingdom in surrender and dependence as a preschooler. And then over time, life got in the way. Do you know that? Life got in the way. The person died. The person I loved, I lost the job. If we had the kid, then we lost the kid. We thought we were together forever, and then it ended. You know this? Life got in the way. The addiction showed up. My family drama didn't stop. The insecurities popped up, that childhood wound, the way I was traumatized as a kid popped up. And over time, that life that we experienced when we walked into the kingdom in surrender and dependence fades, doesn't it? So maybe this is close. You know this experience like today. Like I remember a time when I was experiencing the fullness of life in the kingdom. And then life got in the way. You remember that. And what you started to do is you started saying, well, I got to protect myself. You know, I got to make my own way. The world just keeps going. I got I to, you know, block out the fears and the insecurities that I feel. And I have to make my own way. And so over a period of time, years have gone by. And the life you once have has faded. Do you know this? The further you get from the event where you gave your life to Jesus, some of you are really, really present to that right now. No matter where you are, the good news is that the invitation remains the same. The good news is that Jesus invites you to surrender and dependence. See, the way in is the way on. And every time it fades, the invitation is the same. 
Will you surrender today and place your dependence and trust in me? That's the invitation today. Thank you again for choosing the Vineyard Altoona podcast. We're so excited to see how God will release his kingdom in and through you today for the glory of Jesus Christ. With this, be blessed, and we'll see you next time.